Guys, running a business, a successful one in the fitness industry is simple, it's not easy. It is a lot of hard work, you know that. But when I say it's simple, most of you guys kind of roll your eyes, like who the fuck are you telling? This is hard as hell. And the reason it seems hard for most of you is because you came into this thing with a lot of knowledge as a fitness professional, not a business professional. That is why I made Micro Gym University the first online school for micro gym owners who did not have the benefit of being in the fitness industry prior that tackled this endeavor of theirs of opening their own business without really actually learning business first. There is a saying, you've all heard it, work smarter, not harder. I drop a line or a piece of advice on a podcast or a video and you guys gobble that up. You're like, oh my God, that's fucking genius. Why didn't I think of that? And to me and others like me who have been in this industry for a while, we just take that for granted because we were blessed to have the educational side of being a business owner. We're not having to chase it on the back end when we have rent due and payroll. So if you're interested in leveling up and working smarter, not harder, please shoot me a DM on Instagram at WTF Gym Talk. I'll be more than happy to answer any questions you might have and we can find out whether enrollment within Microgym University is a good choice for you and your business. Guys, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the podcast. Alrighty, guys, what is up? It is Stu. It is What the Fuck Gym Talk. I have my good friend, Mr. Jim Crowell, formerly the CEO of OPEX. And recently, I was just, um, as the CEO of OPEX, you had me on your podcast recently. And then um, it wasn't too far afterwards that you announced that you were resigning, correct? Yeah, yep. Awesome. And, and, you know, for everyone here, you know, we talked about this off air, you know, I've got a lot of other things I want to jam on uh, with you today, but a lot of people are like, well, what's the deal there Did him and James like get in an argument over an arm wrestling conversation <laughs> or like, you know, did, did you happen to, did he find out you were a big fan of esports? Because we all know how much James <laughs> hates e-gaming and esports. Like, so, you know, for anyone that's curious, what, what's the, just the overall story there? Yeah. I, I always say, first and foremost, I don't, it, James and I never, came to blows on any of these things. I mean, certainly we had disagreements on some things, but, um, you know, I just wanted to do something slightly differently and by slightly differently, I, I want to go build something in a little bit different way. And I have, I really have a ton of respect for James and what we built at OPEX and, um, it's in a great position right now. And it, and given everything going on in all honesty, man, it, it just made sense for me to go now because I just had some different things that I wanted to do. And I felt like I did what I could do at OPEX and, you know, now it's in Carl's hands and it's, a, it's a great thing. So, yeah. um, I certainly don't feel like I'm leaving on any kind of a bad sour note. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's the case. And I'm sure everyone instantly goes like they think the dramatic, you know, you know, the drama storyline first go, like, oh, what happened, right? Kind of scenario. And and I can, you know, from someone who is such a fan of James, obviously I'm huge, still a huge fan of James from the OPT days, mm-hmm. to, you know, I thought it was such a big move for a founder to get out of his whole way, his own way and bring you in. And bringing you in as CEO, that is when the OPEX license model and the growth of everything just really catapulted. I mean you're like a grow, you're a grow CEO. You came in, you grew the thing, you've got it to a certain point. Carl's got, you know, Carl's got a great uh, tenure with you guys. He's been with you guys for a period of time and they'll go on into their, their next stage. I was always really impressed with everything. I mean, you know, from everything like partnering with the rebrand work that you guys did with Metcon creative. I mean, everything from top to bottom under your flagship there, I thought was stellar and I'm sure you've got, you know, uh, no, no shortage of emails and text messages from people who would love to jam with you about maybe helping me grow my thing as well. Do you ever see yourself in that role? There's a lot of businesses that have the gross CEO, the guy that comes in it gets into a certain spot and then moves on or they give him some other consultant role, uh, you know, and he moves on to another company. Yeah. I've spoken to a couple of funds actually who would love to see me go into one or a couple of their invested companies and take them from X to Y. And um, that's really interesting to me because I I fancy myself as a builder. And uh, certainly what I did at OPEX wasn't remotely all on my shoulders. You know, we had a really good team um, that was really, really good at what we did. And particularly this latest round of CCP education and stuff like that's really good. Um, But I think that I'm, capable of putting together really good teams based on what the company needs um, to go from A to B. And I think I'm very realistic as to what certain companies have the potential to do. 
you know, so I'm not going to go into a local gym and be like, okay, we got to go to 40 million this year. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, that's, that's not going to be, that's not going to happen. And I know you and I are going to talk franchise license in a, in a couple of minutes. And, and so I think maybe one of the biggest lessons I learned at OPEX is, well, what, what does scale really mean? And what does brand really mean? And, and what sort of competitive advantages do you have or don't have? And then how do you market those to your consumers in a way that's most advantageous for them? Um, and I made plenty of mistakes on that. And, and certainly looking back, I would have done some things a little bit differently, but ultimately it's about a thousand tiny decisions that make up what you ultimately want to do with your company. And I think that a lot of people think it's just this one big decision and don't get me wrong. You've got to attack opportunities when they come. But I, I think that too many people are sort of just thinking like, okay, I got to make this massive decision. That's going to change everything. It, but it's like, it's a thousand decisions that you make every year. Well, more than that, I guess, but um, that makes or breaks whatever you're trying to build. And, and people just need to get into that grind and love that grind if they want to take something through the shoot. So you brought up two things there that I think are so interesting. Like the first thing is I think there's a lot of micro gym owners right now that again, depending on the, the financial engine behind their business, how much they make, if they ever get into an, an opportunity, I think one of the, the roles as you've gone through, you've got a GM, you've got this, whatever, outsourcing yourself and getting a real CEO, real business minded, because we can both agree a lot of these gym owners are beyond passionate. They're great technicians. They understand their craft. But from a business perspective, they're probably too emotionally involved and they, they would probably need someone to come in with a fresh set of eyes to really steer the ship if they wanted to grow to a certain thing. You know, very rarely you hear this, these stories of a, a micro gym owner, single location, getting to a million dollars a year in revenue you don't hear that story a ton. And I, I think there's a lot of them probably sitting at probably maybe about $600,000 a year in revenue, seven, 700, and they could maybe do a million. I think what it takes, it would take a fresh CEO and for the founder to relinquish a lot of that business control because there is, I believe there's a certain uh, journey that the founder is not best to take for that business. I think, I think someone like you, a CEO, someone who can come in business savvy and with a fresh set of eyes is probably the better person to lead that part of the journey. I think that that's probably true in many cases. I think it depends on what the original owner had as their initial vision for what they were building. I would argue that many well, let me put it in two buckets. There's a huge bucket of gym owners that got into being a gym owner because they thought it was the most fun thing to do. You know, that's the passion bucket like you're talking about. There are certainly gym owners who got into it to make a profit. And those are typically the folks that are thinking about multi-location and optimizing revenue, et cetera. So possibly the ones who got into it for that reason might be the person that could grow it to a certain level. But if somebody can go from passion to understanding their model extremely effectively, then I have seen it work where they can take it through the shoot. But I would probably agree with you that typically it takes an operator, you know, or, you know, artist, manager, entrepreneur, it takes a manager to really put systems in place to duplicate the processes efficiently enough to make something go from 600 to a million. Because if you're doing that in one brick and mortar facility, I mean, keep in mind, that's almost a hundred percent gain, you know? So yeah. it's like, that's a lot different than 600,000. And that's going to take a lot of processes basically being fail proof, which a lot of gym owners don't have in place. Yeah. And it's also, it's so unique too. And I mean, I, I've, I've told this story here, you and me were sitting, I think it was our second iron and mortar or the last one, the third one, the most recent one. And we're sitting at the speaker's dinner the night before. And uh, James is across from me. You're across from me. And I, I love him. My, JP, that little fucker. I love JP. JP sits down. <laughs> and JP and James, I don't think have ever really met. And we're going mm -hmm. around the table talking about what do you see in the industry. And JP drops a line where I feel like he almost did it purposely. He says something to the effect of coaches are not the future of the industry. And I looked at you and I looked at James. And I saw James grab his knife and I thought he was going to <laughs> fucking stab JP in the jugular. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm here for this right now. And But James is such, when, we, when, you, when you go to your Gerber hierarchy there, the artist, the manager, and the, the entrepreneur – James is so much the artist. I mean, he is going to be a career coach and he has such a, like one thing I think James has above most of us that we think we have a belief in fitness. 
that dude has a belief in fitness that is just, it's yeah. in his DNA. And I think that's such mm-hmm. a powerful part of that. But when you have maybe CEO and, and you have, you have the, the operator like you and the visionary, God, that's, I mean, that's just such a unique way. It's just such a unique re- relationship, the balance, you know, kind of scenario. And um, yeah, I, I applaud James in, in making that move for the CEO, like bringing you in on that. I always thought that was super, I, I, I love that. I thought it set a great example for individuals. And then I, I would always love, cause I would get to see James speak on that and I get to see you speak on it. And you guys both, while well, you both had your different things, you were always talking the numbers, operations, the, and then James always talking, you know, what do you deter, determine as success, right? His, you know, his very, um, you know, he would, this visionary work. He was so much, he would just existentialism, if you will, yeah. like he would just leave. And, um, but you guys always were in harmony. It was still yeah. the same message for the brand. And I always respected the shit out of that. Again, I still do, but it's, uh, I'm glad you're moving on. I'm glad you're going on to your next chapter. And your second thing you brought up there is I, I did a podcast on this today. Guys, what would you do if the gym went out of business? Like, what would the next thing you be doing? And, and would you beat the shit out of yourself? Or would you realize maybe that is just one stepping stone in a, in a significant journey for the rest of your life? It was one learning point. And, you know, who knows? You could be the CEO of six companies before you decide to retire. And yeah. each one you'll have an intimate relationship with. It was just time to move on. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things I've learned maybe in the last two years is I've really digested the idea that industries change, economies change, business models change. And so the idea that a brick and mortar gym is going to look the same in 20 years is almost laughable. You know, like just if we put history in front of us, but how many gym owners are prepared for that shift that will ultimately come now COVID that massively increased the speed with which things changed. And I do think that we will revert back to somewhat of a state of normal, uh, maybe 12 or 18 months or so. But um, people need to know that the industry shifts. That is a fact. And so you have to be willing to shift with industries if you want to stay in the game. And so I think, you know, what you do with your coaches and owners is so important because you help them see what reality is so that they can at least be ahead of this changing dynamic um, I mean, imagine 15 years ago, the whole landscape was different. There was no Orange Theory. CrossFit was an infant. You know, there were no such thing as these boutique bar studios and stuff like that. It's completely changed in 15 years. So imagine what happens the next 15. You know, I, I think that we just have to be prepared that things will change and you want to be as proactive as you can, but you can't stick your head in the dirt because that's when you get beat up and that's when all your money goes away. And that's when you, you're just way too late to whatever the next game is. Yeah. You get romantic about the way it was and what got you to where you are. And, you know, we've all seen that we've, the gym owners like, I'm not getting an Instagram. I've got face, I've, I, you know, Facebook, right. Or I'm fuck TikTok, you know, like whether it be social media or even, you know, what I call like the 2008, you know, CrossFit gym owner that is just like, yeah, you know, you're going to have to do this digital thing. This is, this isn't like going away. This isn't, you know, just part of this COVID winter flu you think is coming. Like it is the, it's the next thing. And it's, um, anyway, so with, with all that, you know, you and me were talking and I've had a lot of conversations, um, recently with micro gyms that believe they've created something unique and special. And uh, even the day that you and me were on that podcast was right around the time when Jason um, Kalipa announced the NC Fit Partnership License Program. And obviously OPEX was a license model. And when I talk to a gym owner who, again, whether they actually have it or not, they're like, I got this unique thing. I'm like, cool. You want to scale it? Yes. Well, you don't, if you've chose, you've decided you don't want to do corporate ownership. You don't want to own all these locations. That's a very slow growth and you've opted not to. So now you need OPM, other people's money. And scaling looks like franchising in the fitness space or licensing, which is what CrossFit essentially did. OPEX does. Franchising is what you'll see with, you know, uh, bar method and orange theories and metabolics and so on and so forth. And you start having these conversations. What, talk to me about you, the origin of when OPEX was talking, you know, wanting to scale and grow and why you guys chose the license route versus a, a franchise route and what the, and the difference between the two for anyone who's listening doesn't know. Yeah, I would say that OPEX did it maybe differently than many business models did it. We 
we put OPEX gyms out because we had a demand from our coaches to systematize the method of individual design in a gym. So we never looked at it like we were going to change the world by having thousands of OPEX gyms. I think maybe the, the biggest number I ever told somebody was like, maybe we'd have 250 gyms one day, you know, and, and, that, and that would be many years down the road that we would have that. So I don't think we were ever under a false premise of how big something like OPEX could be, though I think we were excited for what the potential of it was. The, the way that we decided on license versus franchise was also fairly simple. The complexity of creating a franchise is disgusting. And, and I say that lovingly because franchises are great, but you have to go through a lot of legal hoops that cost a lot of money. And when, when we really looked at it, we said, well, would franchising in OPEX gym, and keep in mind that would increase the cost structure pretty dramatically to the end user, you know, the, the license, or excuse me, the franchisee, would that actually help them have more success at the end of the day? And we didn't think that it would because, you know, the, the, the equipment maker or the exact layout of the facility or the colors, we didn't have a big enough brand and we didn't think we were going to be good enough at scaling a brand globally that charging $50,000 upfront and 7% of revenue would actually be worth the money for an OPEX gym to pay. So stage one for us was, okay, well, let's simplify it. Let's get this product and this method out to people in the, in the easiest way possible. And we really, from day one, we, we looped it around an educational model. So people came in for CCP and then they're like, okay, well, we don't know how to do this businessing. So we did the licensing that was really an additional stage of education for them and with that came, okay, this is what you do to open your gym. Here are all the processes. Here's what we're going to give you. We're going to help you with your logos and colors and brand and blah, 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 blah. We're going to give you this social. And, and, and we sort of just built it that way. Um, the big thing that I think a lot of people asking this question of franchise license need to ask is, it's very different, but I kind of view it as, it's like W-2 employee versus a 1099 contractor. If you're a franchise you're owned, you know, like you have to do what the franchisor tells you to do. It has to look one way. It has to function one way. You can't use certain words, blah, blah, blah. If you license something, there's a lot more leeway on what the licensee can do with the product or the service that they're licensing. So I, I often think about like Disney's one of the biggest licensing companies in the world. So yes. Mickey Mouse, right? Like they license Mickey Mouse to freaking everybody. And so if you have a license to produce Mickey Mouse dolls or whatever, it just has to look like Mickey and then you can yeah. sell it in a, you know, a myriad of different ways. Calvin so Klein is a license model. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You exactly. know, people wearing Calvin Klein, uh, they didn't make it. Somebody else yeah. made it and they're licensing the brand name. I think, you know, when you were, I love that W2 versus 10, and I think it's a great way to think of it. So, you know, the, the franchise, the FTC regulates franchises, right? And in the United States, franchising is a serious, serious business. So much so that, I mean, there's, you know, the FDD franchise disclosure docs, for anyone not familiar with this, this is a, it's a 23 or 24 point document and you have to produce all this stuff. And essentially you create this, you hire a firm and they'll cost you upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes. And then you go out and you sell it and you like metabolic. I, I did a, a talk with them recently. They, you know, they took and gave um, a decent percentage of their business and sold it to a franchise accelerator who is now going to go ahead and, and grow their stores. And with that, they obviously give up a, a, ton, a bunch of money, but they've got someone who's going to take them to a volume based business model. But you create these FDD docs and somebody who wants to see them is literally getting to see inside the Wonka factory. And that person pays a fee and it's kind of like earnest money on a home, right? You're going to pay a fee. You get to see the franchise disclosure docs and you get 14 days to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? And it's, you know, you, it is such a, probably like you said, it's a process and your origin of licensing, very similar, I think, to Glassman's origin of affiliation, but affiliation is just licensing. 
you had coaches. And I was, I remember I did one of the last in-person five-day certs in Boston, a CrossFit crake or crack or something like I can't put some Gaelic fucking name. Um, <laughs> and I did it there. And I remember looking around and James kept getting asked the same questions. Well, when I go back to my CrossFit gym, how am I going to bring this in? Essentially, you guys created the license model because you had this supply of people saying, I have all this knowledge now of a different way to do it. I want to do it differently, but the owner of my gym doesn't want to do it that way. Or I own a CrossFit gym and I don't know how to flip it on these guys. How do I do that? So you guys had yeah. to create it just like the affiliate model was made for all these CrossFit coaches who were never going to get a gold gym to allow them to drop barbells from overhead and kipping pull-ups. When you guys were looking at it with the license model, because we have you got Jim Crow at the helm, you have a lot of business knowledge to give. How much you know, did your lawyers tell you guys, hey, be careful because the difference between franchise and license, one of the main differences, you cannot have continuing business relationships with that, the licensee in which you are telling them how to conduct their business. Yeah, we, the way that we always played that is there was always an educational component, um, but they chose how they executed within their business. So I, I got very used to saying the term, um, we're not requiring this, but it might work really well if you did X, Y, or Z, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and so in reality, Stu, I think that I probably put too much education in at one point. And I was, I was constantly trying to simplify down to the most important factors, which for, I mean, for any gym, but for an OPEX gym was, I always, I basically just got down to acquisition retention. It's like, okay, and, and what happens inside of acquisition and retention? Okay, well, acquisition is all about number of conversations that you have with people. You know, it's like, and really that's what it ultimately boiled down to. And it's like, well, it's like, well, what's the conversation? It's like, just talk to more people. It's like, well, digital or in person, it's like, I don't Both. care. Just talk, Both, you, know, yeah. like, you know, and then well, what's retention? Thankfully, OPEX gyms never had a problem with retention on a global level. Right. So I didn't have to overeducate on the retention because the model was typically pretty good and it was malleable enough for somebody if they had to go on vacation or go online or whatever. COVID didn't really hurt OPEX gyms in any substantive way. So that was always pretty solid because of what they already learned through CCP. But the marketing side of it was always challenging because we had a lot of coaches who were artists like James, right? Like they wanted to write programs and coach people on the floor. Um, and they didn't necessarily want to operate on the acquisition side of the equation. So when, when we then had to start going after people who were more high quality operators who wanted to go out and market because that was the challenging part for an OPEX gym. And certainly we had folks that came in and, ultimately recognized that wasn't the type of model that they wanted to run. And that's fair. Um, but, but it, it's, it doesn't have to be complex, but you have to get people to execute on running their business. Um, and whether somebody was an OPEX gym or there was CCP coach, the ones who are winning the most, and let's just call it what it is on the financial side of things, which it ultimately always comes down to that, right? Like it always comes down to that. Um, they were the ones who were the most consistent spitting a similar message to their audience. You know, like it doesn't, and I think you, you know, you would tell everybody that same idea, right? It's like yeah. your brand is what the market perceives you to be. You sure. Know? But you just have to be consistently that thing. You can't, yeah. you know, me and Boris, I have a standing segment with Boris on the podcast. And, you know, we talked about everybody wants a cool brand. And what is cool? Mm -hmm. It's being authentic to whoever the fuck the brand is, you know, your brand values, who you are, who you serve, and just doing that consistently. And those touch points consistently over time that, that, that hopefully creates the right branding in the hearts and minds of your consumers and prospects and leads. It's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm curious on this, you know, you, uh, I had a, a gentleman come down here from Orange Theory. He was actually on CrossFit HQ seminar staff, but he was a head trainer at Orange Theory as well. Me and him go out and have a drink and he's telling me, you know, uh, he's like, how the, how the Orange Theory is down here doing? And I was like, yeah, you know, from what I hear, it's, you know, this, that, the other thing he goes, they're all getting their asses kicked right now by corporate and we're doing a global reset. And I'm like, well, talk to me about what, what is a global reset? He's like, we found Orange Theory franchisees our franchise um, running 
uh, kettlebell style workouts in their studios or doing this piece of equipment or that, that is not a part of the, the brand at all. So a global reset was happening because you get enough inmates. Sometimes they run the asylum. Yeah. And and that was interesting because I know with your model, you had so many CrossFit gyms retro trying to, you're trying to retrofit these CrossFit facilities is to OPEX facilities very often of the time. And a lot of them were their Genesis and fitness was running group fitness classes. And now you have this individual design model. Did you guys ever find like you're trying to have this quote unquote global reset of being like, guys, stop running group classes with an individual design model. And how were you, how did you guys enforce that? when the licensing, just like the 1099, you can't tell the 1099 what to wear to work technically, right? Just like you can't tell the licensee, no, you cannot do that. Or in your license docs, did you guys have structure where we will remove your license if these violations occur? Yeah, for an OPEX gym, that was part of what they had to sign up for, was that they were gonna run an individual design model and that they couldn't run you know, a, a group model or a kettlebell based, you know, whatever. Um, and so they knew that coming in. And so as long as they were willing to sign that up front, then we had the ability and keep in mind, this is through our lawyers. If this was done wrong, our lawyers were also incorrect. Um, but uh, they, we never, we never had any legal problems with that. We had some folks who ultimately wanted to change their model and they, they chose just to leave, you know, the licensing model and, and that was fine. Um, I think certainly I learned a lot over the years about, you know, what I would probably choose to do with either a franchise or a license because to me, whether you're doing a license or a franchise, ultimately, and I hope I say this the right way, ultimately it comes down to I am paying you as the franchisor, the licensor money because you should have additional margin because you carry a competitive advantage. Now that competitive advantage might be lower cost model. It might be customer preference. It could be brand. It could be supplier, whatever, but you should have extra margin that I can pay you money to get this service so that I can make money and you can make a fee off of me if there's no competitive advantage to the model, there's no value to it. I'm so glad you brought that up. So I, you know, and analyzing things. So like uh, an orange theory obviously has the competitive advantage of brand. They yeah. definitely have relationships with vendors like pre-core and lifetime fitness treadmills and all this other stuff. They, they have, they're able to give you their perks and benefits to signing as a franchisee. Yep. Those individuals that are, you know, that have a micro gym and they think they have something that's scalable and that could go to other towns or locations, you got to really think what is that unique offering, that USP unique service proposition or sales proposition that truly would give someone the benefit. And, you know, that's where, you know, the concept of branding, it's the great, the great thing about branding is that you can build it. It costs you a lot to build it, but I mean, once you have it, it's this intangible value add to it, like what is the value of Pepsi, like from the brand perspective, right? Versus the, you know, all the ins and outs that make a can of Pepsi with the soda inside of it. What, you know, when you're looking at this, let's say you get a gym owner coming to you and they want to license their model, right? They realize I don't have the cash to go and do a franchise disclosure doc. I, that makes my head hurt even thinking about it. What are the things you're looking and asking them and, and talking to them about? Yes, yeah, something that I think a lot of, let's just stay in the micro gym side of this thing. They're not thinking about what happens when they try and scale this. So the two big factors to me that come to mind are if I scale this, let's just say to facility number two, number one, they had better get to facility number two before they try to license this thing because they don't know dick until they get to facility number two like because they're typically the operator they don't have any understanding of if somebody could run a second facility without them there you know and, and in reality i think three facilities is really where you learn a lot because you can run two facilities on your own but three is very very difficult on your own so you, you have to ask yourself is this repeatable and let me say this in a way that's not condescending, right? Like, could the dumbest person you know run this facility? Yeah. And if the answer is no, you've got work to do because what you're selling is access to easier money and efficiency. 
like as the franchisor, right? Or as the licensor. If you don't have those things, you're always going to be chasing what value is. Because why would I pay you money as a licensee or a franchisee if my life's going to be harder and I'm going to make less money? And, and that's where anyone who's, you know, to our previous question, what is your unique thing? Do you have, again, the vendors? Do you have the brand? Do you have proprietary equipment? I just had a podcast with Board30 and Board30 is a, um, they have a patent on this piece of equipment. The fucking board you stand on, resistance bands, whatever it is. But let's say you don't have those things. But what you do have is a tried and true and you can show, and that's, the, that's another difference. You do not have to disclose the financial. You, got, you guys did not have to show that OPEX, you, I don't know, you guys probably didn't have to disclose the financial um, documents and the, the historics of the Scottsdale location, right? Or of another gym. Like that in a franchising with an FDD docs, you've got to show a POS, this proof of concept and the numbers behind it. Someone's got to yeah. be able to see that return on investment. So in a licensing, it does behoove you to also have, okay, cool. I might not have the brand thing yet, but we're going to get there. I might not have a super unique piece of equipment, but you know, that's okay. What I do have is a system that is turkey makes your life easier. Here is yeah. this. And again, this is more of a, probably a lawyer question. At what point do you now start like, okay, well, this is the business system that gets you there. And now you're stepping into the gray of franchising versus licensing. And I, you know, board 30 in my interview with, uh, with flurry, she said, our lawyers told us that once we get to a certain number, anticipate an ass kicking from the government because we're a license versus just like Uber. Uber, remember they got their asses yep. kicked because they had all 1099s and no W-2s. Yep. You grow big enough and obviously there's gonna be attention on you. And if everyone's a license and you've scaled to a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred locations, how are they all doing so damn well independently if all their licensing is just the name? You know, well, someone, yeah. you go ahead. Sorry, I, I, that, that just makes me think of CrossFit, right? Is you know, you and I have had this conversation a thousand different ways over the years, but I have thought what CrossFit did was fine. You know, it's like, I'm going to, we're going to license our name and you can run approximately the model that we taught you in the level one. It's like, cool. I'll pay $3,000 for that. If I get 50 people a year that want to come to my gym because they've heard of CrossFit, you know, it's like, that's, that's a license model, right? Like yes. they don't have to give you, or it's not even have to, they're not really supposed to teach you the business model per se Correct. within that. Now, do I think that there could be education to make coaches better and more capable on for sure, for sure. And I think that there could be more support in different ways for the affiliates. However, they had a $3,000 a year license, you know, affiliate. You're paying typically $50,000 plus upfront, plus you got to buy the equipment to fill out, you know, if it's an orange theory, plus you got to go into a nice facility in a good area so it's more expensive. And then you got to pay seven to 9% somewhere around there of your revenue back for marketing and fees and whatever else. It's like, add that shit up. Yeah. You know, so for $3,000, if I had 50 people a year walk through my door that are going to pay me. 150 bucks a month, do the math. That's an unbelievable return on that investment. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and at I think the time, it was the, would you say the brand was the thing, the, the unique sales proposition for CrossFit, or was it the, the belief in fitness and the education that came with this quote unquote, the new methodology that was CrossFit? What, what do you think? And again, I was one of those guys and I really look back at it. It was never really the brand name for me in 2008. And nah, it wasn't like, it wasn't that yet. It was this, um, this recipe. I'm going to go open up a restaurant with this specific recipe for pulled pork and it's going to kick everyone's ass in town. Yeah. I, um, let me stumble yeah. my way through this, but I think CrossFit was brilliant because in 48 hours, and don't get me wrong, you can also kick them in the teeth for telling you that you're ready to open a gym in 48 hours. Sure. However, in 48 hours, I knew how to open a CrossFit gym. Like that's you, knew, on, that's, you knew the coaching, you knew, you knew what to do with somebody when they stood in front of you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and when somebody shows up to my gym, it's like, okay, I got an hour class. I'm going to walk them through a warm up. I'm going to walk them through a workout and then I'm going to send them home. It's like, I can do that. You know, that's, that's simple enough. And so that provides an unbelievable level of efficiency and duplicatability for anybody who I bring in to coach in my facility. So it makes my life significantly easier on the personnel side. Um, if I attack that with CrossFit is a very understandable name by itself. 
like cross fit. It's like, got it. You know, it's like, like, let's forget about the games for a second. And you know, whatever else around the brand, it's like, I understand that. And, And I can tell you from being OPEX and having nobody understand what you do for a little while, I would, I would love to have something that people immediately understand just by looking at it. Um, it, that, that was important. Sorry. And then the games, right? Like if, and actually I looked at the the Google trends of this actually fairly recently, it was really back in 2008 and 09 where you start to see Google trends starting to kind of move upwards and then 2010, it goes ballistic. And I'm, I'm just going to put that to CrossFit games going to StubHub center and Reebok and everything. Yep. Exactly. And so CrossFit did its job to push the brand out to the entire world. And you think about it from a license model. I've got a lot of these guys that are like, I'm thinking of this, I'm playing with it. Or even like some of the interviews I've had with people have gone license model. CrossFit did it all. And that's all they get. Like they gave you no business advice, like none. You had the Nikki nope. Violetti's of the world, the John Gilson's of the world all show up and start preaching. And you had, you know, Rutherford, you, had, you know, the gyms that did successful cream rise to the top type scenario. So for a brand that really thinks they have something unique and they can offer free business education, not required to do it, but free business education to make this thing turn, you might have a shot at this because CrossFit is a precedent example of one that came out with just a a very unique belief in fitness, very unique at the time, um, and a rabid loyalty to the the brand name, and then that's what you get, and you get education. Mm -hmm. And I think the transformation was – Let's, I don't want to use the word uh, manipulation, but it was at the moment when the dental hygienist who lost 30 pounds went to a $1,000 certification and it, afterwards she was transformed into a coach. It was like yeah. bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And there you all were and you're now a coach. And that like, you just took my virginity. Like you, that was the most, I will remember you forever. You made me a coach. I now have significance and purpose in my life. And you know, I, I really think about like people becoming CrossFit certified open gyms, this psychological like relationship that they were in in courtship with CrossFit, which is why they will fight it, like fight yeah. and defend it to the fucking death. Well, th- you know? that's, I've always, I've always said that CrossFit had a level of religiousness to it, you know, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that there was a faith in the idea that CrossFit was the best thing for you. And I think part of that is biological, right? Like you train that hard. It's like you do shit to your hormones, right? And you do, you know, things change in your body when you train that hard. And that felt great to people. And so you, you factor in this emotional connection and faith in We'll call it the brand, but really it's in the methodology. And now you give them a way to, to further their life cycle in that faith. It's like that is something that could keep going. Now, I'm like, again, again, there's plenty of trade-offs to all of this. And you and I have discussed those on other podcasts. But um, that to me is, you know, these reasons that we're listing are why it spread like wildfire. The belief in fitness with CrossFit, again, the belief, the religion, but you know, all that, you know, who I think is a, the best opportunity I've seen. One of the best opportunities in the fitness industry to do this right now is Marcus. Oh, I, Philly. oh yeah. If Marcus, you know, got one location to go ahead and create a functional bodybuilding type studio and gym, and he was able to sell the idea of this, I believe you'd have, because he has a very rabid following of people who are like, this is the perfect blend between be where I was the douchebag at Globo gym doing back and buys and my desire to do like squat cleans and feel like a froning of the world. Like, like he just, again, and we talked about this, the, the, the beauty of that, that gangbang of, you know, functional and bodybuilding, like why right. did any, why didn't I think of that? Like, yeah. um, it's, uh, I, you know, I look at him he's got a belief in fitness. And he's, yep. he's, he's laid the groundwork from the media and all the, like when you said the conversations for everyone that we glossed over that when Jim said conversations with people, he meant every touch point you could possibly have digital or in person, you know, live or a billboard, whatever it may be, you know, referrals or you yelling at it, you talking to people at Starbucks. Those are the conversations he was talking about. But Marcus has had all those digital conversations and in-person ones enough to where that name, like he could start, I don't know, maybe he is, um, start certifying people. He could just yeah. create his own certification process and I yeah. think he would do phenomenal. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know, but I, I got a, I have a feeling he will. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and 
he has done a very, very, I should say he and his team and particularly Satya Khan um, have done a beautiful job creating a nice mesh of Marcus's social and functional bodybuilding and let's call it programs plus education plus content. And I, I think, and by the way, they've done that with a very small team, you know, so they, they're at least theoretically just getting started on this thing. And so I agree with you. I think it's really nice, but, but to go back to your point a second ago, it's like functional bodybuilding. It's like, I get it. I get that. I get it. <laughs> it I had Jeremy Miller. He owns a brand called uh, Sticky Branding. He wrote a book called Brand New Name. And it's, it's mm. a step-by-step how you and your leadership team would come, like the exercises to go through when trying to name your business, right? It's a great, it's, it's a great walkthrough. The best that I've ever seen of something as complicated as coming up with a name, right? Like yep. everyone shoots for like in the naming world, you know, you shoot for the four-letter business, like the Ubers yeah. of the world. Like that's like, that's the pinnacle, right? Um, so it's uh, the fourletter.com, but it's uh, eBay, all that stuff. The name of what you do, if you're going to get super clever and, you know, uh, you know, you know, even like I joke, I make fun of myself all the time. Like, man, urban movement, I really fucked that up. You know, how many people walk in here and are like, is this like urban outfitters? Like I'm looking for skinny jeans. I'm just like, fuck. Or they're like, is this a microbrewery? When you get cutesy with your name, you better have a great way of explaining what it is. Like Uber is not self-explanatory in the name alone. But the second you hear the business idea, it was unique enough that it punched you in the face. Like, wait, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's not a tax. Someone's going to pick me up in their own car. Like it was so unique that you would not forget it when you, when you first heard it. Um, and, and that's, you know, when I, when I talk to gyms that are rebranding and I want to come up with a cute CD, I'm like, cool, brother, but your shit better be so unique that when people hear it, it's going to stick with them. But if essentially it's just like a CrossFit class, but you decide to call it, you know, whatever, Huga, um, it, it's not going to, it's not going to stick. It's not, well, not like you hope. Yeah. I mean, let's go back to CrossFit for a second. Um, the fact that they were able to trademark that was intensely beneficial to them. I mean, like intensely beneficial to them. There are many names like, like for example, um, I don't know. I, I can't create a, a franchise called jump rope. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, correct. Because, you know, so there's, there's or always going to be, yeah, there's spinning, always going to be a, gray is a company. Yeah. Spinning yeah. is a legit company um, owned by it's, I want to say like mad dog athletics out of Georgia or something like that, but it's uh, spinning is a certification process. That's why you will not see soul cycle or anywhere else yep. use the term spinning the studio here, yep. ride or die spin studio. I still have the letter framed, my wife, she, we, she got a cease and desist letter from a soul cycle because um, of the logo. And then we got some, one the next week. We got a cease and desist from spinning because you cannot call it spinning as a particular educational uh, platform yes. and style of indoor cycling. And, you know, that, that's one of the few uniques, the few examples of someone has literally trademarked that. CrossFit's yeah. another great example. Yeah, and and – that's what I mean about a competitive advantage, right? Like to, to go back to your idea about Pepsi, one of the, one of the ones that I, I really like, I, I posted this on LinkedIn maybe a couple of weeks ago as well, but um, Coca-Cola's brand is certainly in amazingly valuable to them, but it's really the customer preference mixed with the supply chain, right? So the example that I always talk about is, let's say that you go to McDonald's, right? And, and it's like, of course, it's Coca-Cola products. That makes sense, right? And there's no alcohol. Imagine you go get some sushi though. You're probably very willing to try a Japanese beer or whatever, but you're still gonna have Coca-Cola. It's like, just imagine how powerful that is. It, like in the customer's brain, that amount of customer preference is unbelievable. Absolutely. To, you know, to the, to the competitive advantage for, for a Coca-Cola. Now, of course, they've got other things, but yeah. I think what we have to recognize as a micro gym, right, is like you have no competitive advantage in the beginning, none. And so if you want to franchise or license something, you had better start thinking about what competitive advantage you have. And I'm not talking about like, oh, you got a cool brand. That shit doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter because you can hire somebody to give you a cool brand 
you have to have something that means something more tangible than just having a cool brand. Um, and to me, those are the franchises and the licenses that go well. You know, Orange Theory, uh, a lot of people forget, that was really the first fitness company that was doing stuff with heart rate monitors on screens. That, Even though that, the tech has been around forever, they just, right. re, it was the, re, you know, the renaissance of the heart rate monitor. Right. And so now think about it as well. A lot of people are doing more technology. It's making it harder for Orange Theory to maintain that competitive advantage. So yeah. the market's maturing. So just like everything else, you can't say like, ooh, I've got this really cool concept. It's like neat because in three years, there's going to be four other people that can do the exact same shit as you. So why is yours better than those other companies? Yeah. And you hope if you're first to market with it, you've got the time. So now you're day trading on the brand, right? And you've sold it to enough friends, like it's all over the place and you hope, but um, that's, that's really interesting. So I believe coming out of, if we kind of shift to like where we think fitness is going post COVID, I believe there will be a huge evolution of fitness equipment. There are enough people that are stuck at home realizing I can't do the things I want to do fitness wise in the home. I believe and I, I, I've been saying this a lot now, if Arnold used it, if you could find videos of Arnold using it, it needs to be evolved. Bottom line, mm. it needs to get smaller, tighter. The idea that there isn't a dumbbell handle that I can extend made out of like NASA grade fucking titanium and then collapse back in and it fits in my book bag and I can lift weights with it or I could do what I could. That blows my mind. And I guarantee there's a dude on Kickstarter getting ready to set that shit off by next month, right? There are so many smart people out there that realize, holy shit the supply chain shut down. China owns every dumbbell, barbell, and bumper we've got. And when supply chain shut down, things went bad. I had these guys. So I've been, you know, I've been interviewing a ton of at home and this is the, the XP bell. Mm. Think of a sandbag that had sex with a dumbbell and a kettlebell. And you know, they sent me a pair of these and like, this is great. This is an example though of like, of just one example of where I think a lot of inventors, engineers, fitnessy people are going to, merge and the Venn diagram is going to be an evolution in the equipment we utilize. Orange Theory is having a hard time kidding, kit, like when I say kitting guys, creating an at-home experience that mimics the studio experience. It's very hard yeah. to do unless you have a treadmill. Okay. Yep. CrossFit runs into the same thing. Everyone was like, why did 35%, 50% of my membership quit when uh, we went online at home and I gave them all dumbbells and kettlebells? I'm like, because the majority it's of your not experience, CrossFit. it's not, yeah. you're correct. It's not, it's, it's literally, that's, you could find dumbbell kettlebell fitness online by YouTubers who do it better than you. Yeah. Okay. So you got to learn to be able to kit your in-studio fitness experience. And it's got to be something that could travel at home for if this pandemic thing becomes a seasonal issue, you know, if, if this becomes something that's going to be recurring, but even from that, then you know what the difference was back in the day. If you and me, Jim, we were, we're working, we're business guys, we're working and we can't make it to the gym. You know what happened? We didn't work out that day. Yeah. But now if I have a kit, if I have a suspension trainer and this, the torpedo, like alchemy, or I have some whatever unique pieces of equipment that are exactly like what I would do in studio. And I have an, I have a, it doesn't have to be amazing. I'm not talking Peloton amazing. I'm talking like C plus B plus level, you know, a digital streaming workout type experience. I don't have to miss the gym today. I can get in like what's, it's good enough. I can yeah. get into 20 minute version. Well, it's interesting too. I, I agree with you. I think that whether it's the best 30 year play or not, I think remains to be seen. But for the next two years, everybody's got to be able to have stuff from home. You know, I, I do think people will go back to gyms at some point, but I have no idea when, and nobody has any idea when. No. Um, and so these, these companies need to have safety nets if it gets bad again. What I think is going to be interesting is the evolution over the next couple of years of the sensor-based technology where, you know, I chatted with a sensei. You ever heard of a sensei? No. So what they've done now, keep in mind, a number of companies have done part of this. They, they've built sensors that can get into wearable shirts and pants and shorts and whatever. And it, it completely maps your, your body in 3d essentially. And they've also built, I'll call it machine learning algorithms. I'm not sure what you would call it at the end of the day, but you know, it's a learning algorithm that understands very much how you're moving and what correct should be. But a lot of people have done that. But what's interesting about this is that what happens in real time is that the algorithm 
then shoots into your headphone and says, you need to do this on your left leg, you know, the real time, right? So it's like for people that are worried about movement, that is like, that's built, right? Like that's not years away. That's built. It's just a matter of getting the technology into wearables in a very easy way, in a way that works for anybody who wants to use it. So that's partnerships and supply chain and blah, 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 blah. But I think about that and like, let, let, let me get off fitness for a second because I just think this, this example is interesting. Imagine if you were sitting on a driving range, you know, practicing golf and you were wearing this, yeah. you know, these sensors and you had Tiger Woods in your ear telling you how to swing better, yeah. right? So I think what's going to happen as well, whether we're talking equipment or just technology or at-home fitness, you're going to feel completely connected to the influencer of your choice. I love and that. That's, and that's going to change the game. A hundred percent, you know, versus having the, the old golf pro at your driving range or, you know, sitting there telling you like, hit it again and put it more in the hips, you know, right. that it's, kind of scenario. Yeah. It's like, why would I pay $125 for a golf lesson if I could have Tiger Woods in my ear for 15 bucks a month? Oh yeah. I thought, and it's, and it's even at that level. And for gyms, like, I think gyms hear this and it becomes like a doomsday. They immediately, the feeling is like, oh my God, I'm fucked. Like, I'm just a little guy. I'm just, listen, these technology moves way slower than we all think. And also at times it moves a lot faster than we had ever anticipated. It's, I really recommend, like, take a look at, you know, um, I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and buy a Peloton or Tonal or the Mirror. But you should need to go and experience it because I think we can all we can all visualize the our grandfather who's like fuck, fuck your Facebook I still read the paper and you know or the guy who owns a print company and he's saying screw Vista Print right yeah and he's no longer you know Barnes and Noble all these kind of people that because they refuse they stayed romantic about how it was and they never even just looked. Like we all have that grandpa or someone who swore off social media and then eventually they're like, they're the ones retweeting or yelling at Trump at 2 a.m., right? Yeah, yeah. Because once you try it, you're actually like, oh my God, if I really let go of my romanticism with this, this is actually phenomenal. This is, this is absolutely great. And I'm, uh, I, you know, and the mere acquisition by Lululemon, I think like, and I, I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see big fitness um, extension brands and athleisure and equipment. Um, yeah purchase at home fitness companies that even got half. I mean, that was a two-year-old company. I think it was $500 million for uh, the mirror. Oh, they're, they're a little bit older than that, but Are they? Um, yeah. Um, Cause I know a couple of the investors that made the run with mirror and um, the, the value there is very interesting to me. And, and meaning I, I think mirror made a good play selling to Lulu because I think there's a tremendous amount of competition coming in behind it. Tonal is a really yes. good example. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's like, how do I build a company that has scale? Well, if I can sell shit, that's just screws and screens and whatever else, and I can manage my margins that way, that is very repeatable. Yeah, and products. I, exactly. And so if I can, if I can connect the influencers through these platforms to the end consumer, now it's starting to build a network effect. If I can add in a way of gaining a tremendous number of recurring users to that, I've now lowered my client acquisition costs dramatically. So bring Lulu into mirror. Now you've got a high end piece of equipment that could sit in every Lulu lemon person's home. Um, you could have Lulu studios with mirrors, you know, in, in them, you could have fitness. And every workout you watch clothing. is going to have someone wearing Lululemon on it and you'll eventually exactly. just think I've got to have it. Right. So if you look at that acquisition, just from a client acquisition price to both sides of that equation, I, I mean, I haven't run the math, but I, I suspect you could run the math and be like, yeah, that, that could work. Sure. Yeah. Um, like the mirror literally quadrupled their client pool overnight right. with that. For sure. For sure. And, and I think the brand, right? Like mirror felt and look high end Lulu's very high end. Like they mesh really well. Tonal would have to combine with something not edgier, right? But it, like, it looks a little bit less yeah. sexy because it's got the equipment on it, but it's a cool product. Yeah, and by tempo, the way, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, Tonal's now got master classes on it. Oh, nice. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. That's very you interesting. Know? Yeah. So it's, it's, 
it's an interesting time to be in the fitness industry as far as that goes. You and me talked about, you know, it kind of depends on what state you're in right now, kind of where your head is at and your thought and your optimism or pess, you know, your pessimistic attitude regarding fitness. You know, I've looked at a lot of the studios like in New York City and like going, going, you know, remote is you have to. If you're not going remote yeah. and investing your dollars there right now, you are in a lot of trouble. And then there's people in, you know, um, you know, yanked in South Dakota that are back up and running studio going and they're, you know, it, they don't think anything skipped the beats yet. The world is still going in a different direction. Um, I had Mike Jones, the founder of Alchemy 365 on him. They, you know, out of all six, seven other locations, let's say they have 2000 clients, whatever it is, they lost uh, 1200 clients due to COVID out of all their locations. They revamped Alchemy Anywhere, which is their remote on-demand service, and they were able to recoup 700. Mm. And so you, you see like an interesting, you know, for those here that, that are of the belief that COVID is not done yet wrecking the shores of your brick and mortar fitness company, even if you're reopened now, it's, you might like, think about what, if we all could go back a year ago, we knew COVID was coming, what would you have done? You would have prepped with an, on, an at-home solution. You would have maybe had extra equipment to loan out or to kit or to sell. So people have this. And people who get reopened now, I'm very I'm like, do not think it's back to normal. No, 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 no. We are not back to normal. You need to be doing now prepping for the second closing or the second wave of this, whether you actually get closed or not, you know, whether you're a red state or a blue state or whatever it may be, you need to understand that 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 was not a blip, right? It wasn't like when you're, you know, you, the, 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 the lights flicker in your house, like, what was that? There's not even a storm. Oh, no big deal. Just keep going. Like, no, yeah. there's something fucking wrong. There's yeah, something it, else coming. I had a really good conversation with a woman who's uh, building a startup in Germany of all places. And we were chatting about COVID and she goes, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a problem here. You know, numbers are not a problem here. And I said, why do you think that is? She goes, I think it's just pure luck. And the reason why I say that is because like, let's not blame anybody in the United States, but it's a problem in the United States and it's doesn't, it's not going away like period. And if you just look at the number of people who have been tested and shown that they have it versus the number of citizens in the United States. And, and maybe I'm off on this, but I believe that you can get it again, you know, after four months of antibodies or whatever, like, I think you can get it again. And we haven't been in cold weather yet. Correct. So it, it, the probabilities to me would say we have to gear up for at least another wave of this to be, uh, I hate to use this word, but I'm going to fairly dramatic. Sure. Um, and so people need to be prepared to shut down again. Uh, on even an economic level, I don't care what your thought you're, you know, everybody's like, uh, everybody's a scientist these days, right? About COVID, you know, everyone's got their opinion, but you know, I forgot the last stat I looked at as far as what percentage of Americans are currently on mortgage deferment. Like oh every, everyone's mortgage, and this takes, this is like your, this is your fucking thing. Like yeah, this, this is, is like, whenever I, when I, whenever I watch the movie, uh, the big short, I think of you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but like you think of the mortgage deferments that are happening and when that goes away and there's not another round, even if there is another round of stimulus checks, uh, the viability of a $200 studio per month model without having a low barrier to entry offer remotely that kind of, like there's just so much that is happy schools being closed. Like how many people yeah. are now longer, no longer going to the gym because they're no longer going anywhere because their kid is now being homeschooled yeah. or full-time daycare at home and that kind of thing. It just, the world is different regardless of what you think with COVID. The ripple effect, the aftermath, the fallout like an atomic bomb is, in my opinion, going to change the way we've done all of this. Yeah. I mean, I do think people need to remember that we've been stimulated economically by the tune of $3 trillion in the United States. It's like, just put that in perspective for a second. You know, um, right now, at the last I saw... Democrats wanted, I think, the same $3.1 trillion stimulus, and Republicans are at like $1 trillion. And so until they reconcile somewhere in the middle, no, no additional stimulus will come in. Um, but the reason why that's important is because there's a tremendous amount of money, literally cash, in the economy right now. And the people who have cash are fine. The people who don't have cash, and I, you know, we can say whatever we want, but to just go straight for the blunt 
advantage of this thing. The people who didn't have cash before weren't in your gyms. So the people who have cash right now are okay. If they start losing jobs and if there's not a stimulus to hit them, and I'm not saying stimulus is right or wrong, then you will see the next wave of economic challenge that's going to hit those folks. I think that there will be another stimulus. I don't think it'll be as big as $3 trillion, but I think they're going to do something more because GDP fell off a cliff. And I think Q3 will, will stay off of a cliff, just not as bad as Q2, most likely. And so you got you to gotta break apart the stock market from the broad economy because people who didn't have money are in a worse spot today. People who had money in reality are probably in a better spot today because they're spending less and they're still employed. So the inequality piece is growing larger during COVID. If the economy falls out on the stock market, which a couple of things could probably do that, right? If Biden wins, most likely people will sell stocks. And again, it's not wrong. You know, I'm just saying that's probably principally what will happen if Biden wins. Um, but if Trump wins, they might sell them as well because second term Republican presidents usually see a sell off as well. Because people know that you know the you know the butterflies and rainbows part of, of the administration is the over. honeymoon's over, yeah. Right. So if the thing is is that we're very behaviorally based, and a lot of people still connect the stock market with the economy, and of course there's still connection there. But if their 401ks drop, they get scared, and when they get scared, they make irrational decisions. Now, do I think that people? most highly prioritized fitness? No, I don't. Not in the broad spectrum of no. people. There are some people who do, but not the broad. So the more irrational they get, most likely the less they will think about doing fitness consistently. So that's what I'm thinking about in terms of broad strokes is like, I think that we will sell off in the stock market at some point. Do I think it's gonna be depression? Probably not, unless something else changes. But I think that will probably sell off, which will make people skittish, which will make people be a little bit worried about fitness, which means that people need to continue to try to keep a buffer of cash in their micro gyms now, because that cash is going to be what you're going to need if and when things get challenging. Now, the people who are going to survive are going to be the people who get resourceful. You know, so it's like I've seen a lot of people who have more clients today than at the start of COVID. Because they oh, yeah. went and they, they fucking worked to go get new clients. And the people who stuck their head in the dirt, well, they're getting crushed. And by the way, that's, I, I've seen some gyms in New York that have more online clients today than they did in person before COVID. 100%. And it's, it, again, depends on your state and also depends on, uh, from a standpoint of your, the supply and demand in the fitness industry is going to, like we've talked about, a purge has always been needing to come in the fitness industry. It was a yeah. very bloated industry. The purge coming just flips the supply and demand. And so there are gyms, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to say mine's one of them that we've seen this crazy influx. And it just so happens that it's because 13 other gyms within four miles of me have gone out of business in the past four months. Totally. Because the, the rental rates in Charlotte, North Carolina are crazy high. And well, it did, just, you, you know, did you see the stats on restaurant closings in the U.S.? No. Oh, boy. Um, I'm not going to try to hit the exact stat because I'll butcher it. But a boatload of restaurants have closed forever. Yeah. And so one of the things I think a lot of micro gym owners don't think about, it's just not in their wheelhouse, is the, the concept of running businesses has to be about percentage return on your investment. Most micro gym owners never think about that, right? So if it takes you three years of zero profit, right, you're doing this out of passion or whatever, you've just slaughtered your long-term return on your investment yes. because each year that you have to wait is compounding interest or compounding profits that you could have had somewhere else. So imagine that instead of putting $100,000 into a brick and mortar gym, you put it into Amazon stock. Like just, yep. just yep. like just people who are listening to this, just think about that for a second. Like it has to be a passion project if you're going to sacrifice return on investment for it. And it's like, I'm all for it. I'm all for that. You just need to know what you're getting into. And by the way, I, I, but one more thing on this, 
I don't think fitness goes anywhere. I think fitness is one of those things that people are always going to need. I'm not a believer that pills are going to make people feel better in the long run. So I think that there's always going to be a demand for fitness, but you've got to bob and weave, you know, per what the world is showing you if you're going to win. Yeah, Maslow wasn't wrong, but at the same time, there is going to be alternative ways to create connection, to create yeah. self aware, like all that stuff. And it's a, uh, Again, just like anyone else, like the, the gyms that are willing to zig and zag accordingly and modify and, you know, evolve their business will, will survive. And the ones that's, you know, and there'll be, there will be few, we will hear stories about, I didn't change a thing. We blah, blah, blah. And we survived. And, and those are great. Those are going to be the, the one percenters. Those are going to be the unicorns of this entire thing that made it out unscathed some, somehow and more and more power to them. But for the majority of us, it would probably be wise to to heed the the words that Jim's given you, um, man. I listen. You know, at the end of these things, they're all like, "Hey, Jim, if people want to know about more about OPEX, where can they get in contact with you?" But dude, I have you 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 have you thought of? And I'm sure because everyone, you know, guys, if you don't know, Jim's just lying by the pool every day, just hanging out. He's not doing anything at all with his free day. He's literally just enjoying <laughs> the pandemic. Um, are you you've got to do a podcast or something i don't know like you have got to start making some content like and around the like you've got to be doing something well just, this have, is my push for you to do this you know i've I, i've thought about that a lot I, I i and some of the conversations i can't talk publicly about so i'll just leave that cliffhanger there for folks but um I suspect wherever I go next there will be a fairly big push for content one because i love talking about this stuff. And um, I love talking with guys like Stu about it. But if I do something on my own, to me, there's probably like a two piece of that. There's the public facing content, i.e. podcast video. And there's also a nonprofit component of it where I would just put shit up because I think that number one, I think that people need it. And I'm just talking like broad business, right? Like I would, I could see myself doing something nonprofit based, just having fucking hundreds of videos about what business really means to a commoner, you know, not like a university PhD. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I believe that education, like fitness coaching education, the margins are coming down because it's going to be so inexpensive to film video. So you're going to have to be better in other areas if you're going to keep margin up. Um, and certainly plenty of companies will be able to do that. But you can get content everywhere, but it's not necessarily organized very well. So if you organize content really well, I believe that there's lots of ways to monetize that on the backside. Yeah. So it's like, if you get in, obviously I'm preaching the choir on this <laughs> one, Stu. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, would, uh, I would love to have a podcast surrounding this and um, whether it's on my own or I get somebody else to do it with me. I think the only reason I haven't done it instantaneously is because I want to come out of the gates with something that's well done, produced well, video components to it, you know, all that stuff. And I, I would love to do it live as best as I could, but you know, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what comes up. I love it, man. Well, if anyone does want to get in conversation with you in the meantime, where do they do that? Best case scenario probably is, is LinkedIn of all places. You know, it's, um, I'm just Jim Kroll, C-R-O-W-E-L-L, -L, you know, on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm Kroll Jim on Instagram. So those are probably the best two. Um, I won't give out the personal email. I used to give out the work email, but I won't give out the personal email. But if you want to get me, get me on Instagram or, uh, or LinkedIn. I, uh, I've got, you know, I've got jamming with Joe. That's a standing segment on the podcast. I have branding with Boris, which is a standing segment on the podcast. Maybe I need to have cash conversations with Crowell and get yeah. you. And we, we, we just start warming you up and getting you on some kind of regular content. Um, you know, just shooting the shit on stuff, but dude, this is, it's always a pleasure. Um, I really, I treasure the, the friendship and the, the colleague in you that I have in the industry. And it's anytime I've ever needed uh, to ping you on anything, you've always been available. And I'm, I'm very excited for the next chapter of what you've got going on, Jim. Thanks, Stu. I appreciate it, man. I always enjoy our conversations too. I get a lot of value from them. Awesome, brother. All right, guys. Thank you so much.